Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Mad Max Minute, where waking up in strange places is the norm in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 71, which begins with Max drifting away as he flies over the landscape, and it ends with one last look at the quiet man. Good Monday morning, Julia. Oh, happy Monday. This is an interesting way to start a week propped up on a gyrocopter flying over a section of landscape. And the first good quarter chunk of this minute is spent with Max just on his back, seemingly drifting away. He seems to be getting over the initial shock of waking up with the gyro captain on that contraption of a machine. Now he's probably just going to sleep for a little bit. Yeah, it's like long flights. Perhaps the best thing is just to sleep through it. And of course, he's been bleeding and he's probably lost a lot of blood, so that probably doesn't help. No, not at all. So he's in and out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And he gets to miss all of the exciting views that we get to look at from such a high vantage point. Very true. This was very informative for us as viewers. Mm-hmm. We start out seeing the camel pens, which you notice better than I. It was one of the first things that I really saw this minute in particular was how the broken open and damaged camel pens seem to have two or three piles of just i'd say animal remains Mm. and it disappoints me because it would seem that the horde came through killed the animals and then just left them behind yeah that doesn't make a lot of sense to me the screenplay did note i remember we talked about it back way back when we were initially talking about the attacks on the compound The screenplay does note that they killed the animals and took them for food. Yeah. Dragged them away when they were treated for the evening. Maybe it's just a weird bit of set dressing. It disappoints me. Yeah. Because resources are so scarce, they really should be using every part of the proverbial buffalo. Now, I know that this is somewhat of a banned subject for us, but the Horde has proven itself not always to be so practical. Mm Mm-hmm. And we've discussed in the past, at length, how they could have done things different. To be more practical, I think seeing these camels dead in the pen drives home that, in this case, their ferocity and their greed has taken over. Mm -hmm. And they aren't necessarily thinking about the most economical or intelligent ways to handle various aspects of this. Yeah, I think that goes back to when Max was making a run through the camps with the rig initially. And there was that one driver who thought, oh, I'm going to sideswipe the truck and win the day. I think the I'm going to live forever, I'm made of bulletproof material and there's nothing that can stop me mentality that some of these horde members have is to their detriment because they're not thinking about we'll just kill this camel because it's a laugh and then they get to the next day and they don't have meat and they don't have fabric and they don't have bone to make tools out of another one of those if they'd only done this a little differently they could have been in a much better position and we definitely don't want to talk about like (laughs) certainly not the the negotiations between Humongous and Papagala. We beat that horse to death. To death. Speaking outside of that situation, I wholeheartedly agree with you that these guys are just short-sighted. Yeah. And make very bad decisions. Yes. 
I feel like those horde members are going to get to the end of this film and they're going to find themselves in a situation where they're like, oh, well, what do we do now? Oh, boy. And then they're just going to wander off. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the compound dwellers have a goal and they have a, something they want to accomplish. But we'll talk more about that tomorrow because we're going to get to another one of Papagallo's speeches. Yes, we get some insight into their goals. Mm-hmm. So after we fly over the camel pens, we also fly over the compound, which is fascinating getting to see more of it than we've ever seen before we've seen it from a in the elevated position we've seen it up close on the ground we've seen cars and raiders running and retreating from the gate but we've never been this high up one of the first things i noticed is the moat that they've dug around the compound i admit that when we watched the attacks happening the moat never seemed that impressive it never seemed that deep it never seemed that wide and i wouldn't say that it's the same depth and width the entire way around the compound but just the section in front of the tire wall that we see as max flies over it there is a car that is turned on its side and burned out it looks from this distance That moat is probably about, I'd say, half a meter deep, maybe even a full meter deep, which is, for the Americans, about a little over three feet. And then the width of the moat, because you have that car laying on its side, I would estimate would probably be somewhere around 10 meters wide, about 32 feet. Wow. Yeah, just using that burnt out section of car, because the average car is four to five meters, about 13 to 16 feet long. Yeah. So I took that car and just using my fingers, Mm -hmm. did car length, car length, and then like a little bit extra. So rounding it up to 10, I mean, that's a large space. That's not something that you can easily leap down into, storm across, and climb out of. And those motorcycles jumping over the moat during those initial attack shots, it's a lot more impressive now, (laughs) thinking that it's potentially over 30 feet of distance. It's interesting that George Miller and the set designers put so much effort into that moat, and I didn't seem to me that it was used that heavily in the film. Mm-hmm. Kind of seems just a background set piece. They still put so much effort into it. Yeah. I'd say the moat is a low-key aspect to the compound's defense, but it's also an incredible plot hole filler, I guess. Something <laughs> that you can use to explain why the horde isn't just going around to another side of the compound why they're always attacking from that main gate because that main gate has that land bridge where everything is smooth and level and it goes right into the compound everywhere else there's a trench Mm -hmm. just a pit that if they tried to drive through it or over it or start throwing things into it until they fill it up it would take so much time and effort and they would take so much damage from just compound dwellers sitting on the other side of their fence and their trench picking them off with arrows. Right. I feel like the humble moat doesn't get enough credit. But you noticed some things about flying over the compound. I did. We get to see more of the refinery buildings than we have before. A lot of the structures that we've seen thus far have been soft-sided structures. Mm Mm-hmm. Tents, canopies, and the like. It seems to me, though, that the actual refinery is a traditional metal building. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that was already there. But the speech that Papagallo gives in the screenplay makes it sound like the only thing that was there was the pump. Yeah. And they built the refinery. Well, first of all, the screenplay and the final movie, two different things. 
Yeah. And it's quite possible that the pump and the building was there, but they made the refinery work. Yeah. The amount of pipe, the fact that they've got a distilling tower, the fact that they've got big old holding tanks, and some very established-looking solid buildings that we can Mm -hmm. see from above definitely give me that same idea that, sure, the tire wall probably wasn't there, the barbed wire fence, the trench, the tents that you see set up everywhere, those probably weren't there when Baba Gallo arrived. But if there was a team of people working working that pump before the collapse, then they probably had those buildings and just disappeared or were found by Papagallo. But he definitely built that place up from where it was before. Maybe his speech from the screenplay meant more, I turned this depot in the wilderness into a community. Into a fortress, into a place that can be defended and a place that's worth defending, which I definitely feel like he did. Yes. Anything else about the flying? I don't think so. I think we fade to Max waking up in the infirmary vehicle. I loved this scene, him waking up. The slow pan across his body until you finally reach his face. Yep. And it's so dark. And at first I kind of bumped up against that darkness because it is so dark. Mm -hmm. And you really get to see very little of Max. And then he kind of wakes up and turns and we get to see the rest of the van. And yes, the van is dark. There are no lights inside, but the door's wide open. It's bright and sunny outside. And it's pretty bright in there. (laughs) So at first I bumped up against such severe shadow, but then I forgave that because the imagery is so dramatic and so blatantly rising from the tomb. Yeah. The death and resurrection imagery just continues. Mm-hmm. It definitely makes me think about Mel Gibson's later career. <laughs> You're talking about him directing The Passion of the Christ? Yes. And then also on more negative sides, his particularly aggressive ideas about Christianity versus not Christianity. Mm -hmm. So definitely made me think about that a little bit. Yeah. We try to avoid those kind of subjects about Mel Gibson, but it made me think about it. But given the topic of the Passion of the Christ, you definitely get a few shades of that Easter story here because, like you said, the ambulance... It has that reminiscent image of the tomb from the Christian Easter story. Mm -hmm. The idea of the room where Jesus Christ was laid after the crucifixion, and then the mourners come, the stone is rolled away, and it's just an open door to a tomb area, and, you know, the body is not there anymore. The fact that Max is lying in there next to another body, he's essentially waking up in a morgue. Yes. So it's a tomb, it's a morgue, and he has avoided death for the time being. Yes, he has. I looked for some more symbolism. Once I have symbolism on the brain, I just want to see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I looked for some more symbolism about the clothing that is returned to him in a significant way, Mm. as opposed to the Easter story where Christ leaves behind his burial clothing. It's a completely opposite situation where Max wakes up and he doesn't have his clothing anymore, but it is returned to him. And part of his rising again is... Putting his clothes back on. I think one of the major elements of that Easter story is that Jesus Christ is done with earthly things. Mm -hmm. And so his is a temporary return and then a subsequent departure. But for Max, he's returning and he's now once again part of this world. And so he needs those trappings. He needs his uniform. Yes. It could be argued that he's more mortal than ever because he is severely injured. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and he's very much feeling the effects of those injuries. He's in a lot of pain. He can barely walk. He has spent the last little while going in and out of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, again, some opposite things from the Easter story. Yeah. The important thing is that Mad Max is not a Christ allegory. We're not talking about RoboCop or anything like that. Nope, not at all. But, and I think we talked a little bit about this when Jerry was on, that he's not so much their savior, but he is a deliverer of sorts. Because he's going to step up and he's going to volunteer to drive the rig. So he is going to deliver them in a way, but he's not going to save them because they are going to save themselves. Yes. It was their plan. Mm -hmm. They were going to do the same thing no matter what. Max was another skilled person who was going to help them out with that plan. The thing that stands out to me most in this instance, and like I said, Max isn't going to volunteer for anything until tomorrow, but the entire movie. Leading up to this point, he has been all about number one. Him and the Interceptor and Dog are going to go off and leave these people behind. It took him essentially dying. He didn't die completely. He just mostly died. And they have a Miracle Max somewhere in that compound. (laughs) But it took a near-death experience for him to change his tune that now he wants to help these people. Conversely, though, it could also be argued that because he has nothing left in this world, he has no car, he has no dog, that the only other option for him is to help these people. Otherwise, he would have nothing. Right. Which I think we'll get into specifically on minute 73. (gasps) That's where he states that he has no other options or something like that. He's got nowhere else to go or I have no choice. Yeah, it is going to be this Wednesday's episode. Okay. But his injuries are rather severe. The thing that stood out most to me about Max's injuries in this shot where we pan down his body is the fact that the entire left side of his face where his eye is swollen shut is very red and it looks like he got a first degree burn from the intense heat and blast from the interceptor exploding good point i had not thought about that but he was pretty close to the interceptor yeah he would need blisters for it to turn into a second degree burn because then it would have penetrated the outer layer of skin into the dermis you have the epidermis and then the dermis underneath that and when it reaches down through the epidermis to the dermis then it's a second degree and you start getting blisters all right his torso Mm -hmm. i don't recall because i didn't think about this when i was prepping the minute is the bandage bloody is he been bleeding out of his torso or do you think he's just got some broken ribs i'm willing to bet he just has some broken ribs i don't remember seeing any bloody parts yeah broken ribs are tricky because they're pretty painful Mm -hmm. and it makes it hard to move around in a general way which is definitely what we've seen there's also a risk of internal bleeding because the pieces of the ribs may not be where they're supposed to be anymore and can puncture other things yeah which will result in internal bleeding which will will kill you Mm -hmm. may not be quick But it will kill you. He's in one of those positions where he really shouldn't be engaging in strenuous activities Mm -hmm. because he needs time to heal. But that's not really an option here. So we're going to have to trust that his (laughs) super fast Australian healing will kick in and save him in this instance. Yeah, I guess we are. Yep, because his torso is wrapped. They bandaged up the giant cut on his arm. We're going to see tomorrow that they put a fresh bandage around his knee. They've done a really good job. Yes. That knee is a whole other thing that stood out to me, but that's 
not going to be until we see him walking out of this hospital van. Yeah, I have some questions about that, but yeah, we'll address it tomorrow when we actually see him moving around. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think it's about at the point where he's sitting up that the feral child does his thing. Where he... (laughs) He looks to the door. (laughs) Yes. First of all, there's a chicken. Yeah, all that effort. Sitting to the side. To round up all of those farm animals. And there is still a chicken. There's still a chicken. I'm not going to say it's the same chicken that... Arky was holding when her and the gyro captain were trying to convince Max not to leave, but it's also a white chicken, and she was holding a white chicken, so it might have gotten away from her. Well, based on what we see later on in the movie, it's not that hard to get away from her. Yeah, she doesn't necessarily have the best ability to hold on to things tightly. Right. (laughs) But But we also see the feral child hanging upside down in the doorway but just his head yeah he pokes his head into the doorway but he doesn't poke it in from like the bottom or the side no it's from the top because he's been hanging out on top of the vehicle yes he seems to like to get places via not the ground Mm -hmm. which actually reminds me of wes yeah was this limited time in the camp he spent a lot of it figuring how to get a to b without touching the ground maybe they really like playing the floor is lava yes maybe The feral child comes into view via the roof. He does this thing where he's got Max's belongings and he drops them down, Mm -hmm. which we see in a lovely silhouette in the doorway. I went directly back to the scene where the feral child wanted to leave with Max and he dropped his own bundle down again from the ceiling because the floor is lava. Yep. Uh, So I saw some, some nice parallel there. I like that the feral child was keeping an eye on Max's things, that the feral child had faith that Max would recover, and so he knew that he'd want all of his clothing, and so he made sure that no one took them. I agree with you. I want to reiterate. I agree with you, but playing devil's advocate, (laughs) if Max didn't survive, then the feral child got a jump on claiming his possessions. Oh, absolutely. And that's also very handy. And you'll notice, I think tomorrow, we notice what's not included in his bundle of belongings. Yeah, someone already went through and picked out at least one thing. Yes. I'm not sure if they really expected Max to recover. Yeah. You're right. He did wake up in a morgue. Mm -hmm. At least two people were interested in his belongings. Yeah. I still like your idea better that he was keeping them safe for Max. Mm -hmm. And going along with that, it could be said Papagallo took the shotgun to keep the feral child safe. Yeah. You don't want the feral child running around with that. Oh, wait. Finally, there's an adult figure who won't let a child play with a gun? Like a toy? (laughs) Imagine that. Oh, that was a different time. Yes, it was. So we keep saying that Max is waking up in a morgue, and we get that sense because as he sits up from his cot, he looks over to the other side of the vehicle, and we get our last look at David, the quiet man, who is just lying there with his eyes open, forehead caved in, just lifeless. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we got that confirmation. It was definitely something that we've been wondering about since he got headbutted by Wes, mm-hmm. and he just fell out of view. Yeah. I had to jump forward to this minute to confirm it and i remember mentioning yeah, it back we did before mention but, it. Yeah. so i'm glad that they confirmed it it didn't cost them much it took like two seconds mm-hmm. it didn't affect max at all because max is max i think my notes how did i put it in my notes or maybe it's in tomorrow's notes 
Oh, yes, it is in tomorrow's notes that we see Max's reaction to seeing David, and that is to say no reaction at all. Yeah. It costs them nothing to put in these two seconds, and I appreciate that they did. It does give quite the illustration of just how deadly a Wes headbutt can be. I looked it up on the internet, and lots of people were asking that question, if a headbutt could kill you. A lot of the answers that I found were technically yes, but it's unlikely. Yeah. You would need more velocity. So you would have to be headbutted into unconsciousness and then thrown from a high platform? <laughs> Perhaps. I'm willing to bet it might not have been the headbutt that killed him. It might have been the him fall. landing face first into the ground after being headbutted. Yeah. That really did him in. So I suspect that he died from internal bleeding. I'm trying to think of like, oh, could his skull have been cracked and pierced into his brain? But that's the frontal lobe. Yeah. We all know we can do without our frontal lobe. Mm -hmm. Losing your frontal lobe is not... Deadly? Yeah, it's not that big a deal. You'll never be the same, but you'll live. Right. But if you're bleeding internally in your brain, you're done for. It could be quick, it could be slow, it all depends on how much you're bleeding in your brain, but you're done for. Exactly. Any sort of major blood vessel that goes to your brain, once your brain stops getting oxygenated blood, yeah, it's yep. pretty much over. We don't get too much after we cut away from the shot of David. It's just 14 frames of Max yeah. exhaling. But I feel like he's exhaling because he just exerted himself to sit up. Not so much exhaling like, whoo, that's a dead body. Oh, no. Yeah. Like you said, we're going to see tomorrow how Max really doesn't have much of a reaction to waking up next to a dead body. May or may not be the first time he's ever done that. Mm -hmm. Who can say? There's mm -hmm. a lot of there's a lot that we don't see between the two movies, but do you have anything else for this minute? Only one more note about the condition of David and by extension the condition of Max. They both seem very well cared for. Mm -hmm. At least on the surface. They're clean and they're bandaged up. I think we gave a lot of crap to the medical staff earlier when we saw them working on Nathan, but I don't think they deserved it. I think, you know, that was an emergency room situation. The medical dramas that you see on TV, especially the emergency room settings, you see the aftermath of emergency medical procedures. And there's like blood everywhere and mm -hmm. discarded supplies everywhere so an emergency situation is just chaos and in this infirmary van this is not the place of chaos this is the place of order and relative cleanliness and the two people that we see in there they seem very very well cared for yeah i give the medical staff credit for that yeah they're making the most of a bad situation if the only thing they can do is clean up a body, then they did it well. There you go. Tomorrow we are going to see the feral child drop down into the car and bring Max his clothes. We're going to see Papa Gallo talking to everybody about the plan at hand and we'll see how that goes. Come back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 7 one of the Road Warriors. See you tomorrow.